Welcome to What's Up, Wellness from the Third Floor. This podcast is provided by the Wellness and Health Action Team, also known as WET, from Portland State University's Center for Student Health and Counseling, or SHAC. We're located in the Health Promotion Suite on the third floor of the University Center building on campus. Our purpose with this podcast is to discuss a variety of health-related topics in a way that will be accessible for a non-traditional campus. My name is Bella, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. My name is Josh, and my pronouns are they, them, theirs. And my name is Quinn. My pronouns are he, him, his. We're all members of the Wellness and Health Action Team, and we'll be your hosts for this podcast. Let's get into it. This episode was recorded prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, which is affecting all of our lives. While PSU classes are online through the end of spring 2020 term, Shaq remains fully committed to the physical and emotional health and wellness of PSU students at this unprecedented time. We hope that you all are staying safe and healthy and will benefit from our content this term. All right, so we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, Today, we are here talking about how racism affects health, specifically for PSU students and the PSU community as a whole. And we have a very exciting guest today. We have Ryan Pedway um, from the School of Public Health here at PSU, and I'll let him introduce himself. Yeah, uh, so I'm an assistant professor in the School of Public Health. Uh, I focus on community health broadly, specifically my training is in social epidemiology and uh, community-based participatory research and youth participatory action research. Uh, So generally, quickly, a lot of folks know what epidemiology is, studying the causes and the distribution of disease. Social epidemiology is looking beyond the immediate and more proximate causes of why people are getting sick or or why people are healthy and looking at the the larger structural factors. Mm -hmm. So that includes things like racism, sexism, homophobia, things of that nature, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I, I apply a lot of my work and my training specifically within like neighborhood and local and place-based contexts. So mm-hmm. looking at, for example, um, what are the forces of, um, you know, classism, wealth inequality, and racism that structure health opportunities in certain neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that um, uh, focusing on racism is like kind of a core element of what I do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we are very happy to have you here. And I think we can start off by defining racism because... I mean, it's a pretty general common knowledge of what it is, but let's talk about specifics of how it operates. Yeah, so I'm not going to give like a Webster definition because <laughs> it's vague and generic. I yeah. think what's important about when we try to define racism is that it's not a, um, a static, monolithic kind of thing. Um, that racism evolves, mm-hmm. um, that people have heard us saying that, you know, race is a social construct, well, so is racism. Mm-hmm. Um, it reflects current social, economic, political context. Um, so as t- things change, the structures and the expressions of racism change. And so I think generally what folks should understand about racism is not um, rooted entirely on indiv- individual interactions. Yeah. Um, and then ultimately it's all about systems of power, uh, exclusion and oppression. Right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that um, having said that, uh, I think it is useful for people to understand that what we most commonly understand and see as racism is like what we see people do or say to each other or about yeah. somebody, right? Yeah. So using names or blatant acts of just disrespect that are based on race, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that is an important form of racism. But there's, and generally we call that interpersonal mm-hmm. racism, uh, but there's also institutional racism uh, and internalized racism and structural racism, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just like four general like levels, right? Um and just quickly on those, so internalized racism are the ways in which uh, people of color over time, we learn to basically internalize these forms uh, of a, uh, the expression of these oppressed ideologies 
about the value of ourselves as people of color based on white supremacy mm -hmm. and notions of whiteness, right? Um, and so you see that sometimes with um, with colorism within communities of color, right? And the preference over uh, certain skin tones, right? Or certain hair textures, you see that sometimes. Or just belief in ourselves, right? Like mm -hmm. this, uh, this idea um, that we have with like stereotypes regarding like, you know, like, I don't know, like math or science and STEM and stream and all these things are coming up, right? There's a historical context wherein we've been, communities, a lot of communities of color have been uh, historically conditioned to not view themselves as being capable mm -hmm. of doing these things, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not that we are not and we, that we haven't been. It's just that that's the way that we've been represented and understood mm -hmm. under, uh, you know, the umbrella of white supremacy and, and, and racism, right? And so um, a lot of folks, like, we internalize elements here and there, right? Um, so that's an important level uh, that matters for health as well. Um, institutional racism, like it says, it's, it's about institutions. Mm -hmm. And so I think some common examples of institutional racism, for example, our federal government for the longest time. Uh, with supporting racist housing policies through mm -hmm. things like redlining mm -hmm. um, and through the homeowners own corporation that practice of redlining um, you see institutional racism um, and like mass inc uh, incarceration policies mm -hmm. those mm -hmm. types of things right um, i think that you look at the ways that public schools are funded and not funded based on uh, racial segregation in neighborhoods mm -hmm. uh, it's another expression of institutional racism right and what structural racism gets at, kind of like the overarching thing, is how all these other levels are interconnected to create like an entire mm -hmm. pervasive. It's always there. Mm -hmm. It's always structured. It's always operating, whether we see it or not. We don't have to have somebody calling us a name mm -hmm. for racism to exist in the interaction, yes. right? Yeah. Um, and so I think that that's what's important for folks to understand, and, and that at each level, there's ways in which our health is being either directly affected. For example, if somebody does call you a name, the stress response you might have mm -hmm. can compromise your health. Mm -hmm. um, or even just like a racist microaggression, uh, the same thing. But that might happen in a moment, and that might happen while you're like in a neighborhood being exposed to more air pollution because of racism on an institutional level that mm -hmm. made your neighborhood have the worst air quality or made this particular neighborhood the only place where as a person of color you could afford to live, right? Mm -hmm. So all these things, levels could be affecting us simultaneously, right? Yeah. And so they're kind of inextricably linked. I always say you can't have racist individuals without structural forces of racism, right? Mm -hmm. And you can't have the structural forces without racist individuals. Whether mm -hmm. or not people are malicious and deliberate about it as individuals is not the point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why this conversation is so important and why it applies to health, because racism is part of, it's part of every, like, faction of society and the way our society operates. And so race will inevitably impact health because it is so ingrained in our society. Yeah, definitely. And I think that sometimes you hear, uh, it seems like increasingly over the last few years, I won't speculate why, um, but this tension that um, for communities of color to uh, hold up uh, whole political space uh, and social space um, to demand and advocate for, for equity within health, right, or just racial justice in general, um, the sometimes the pushback is like, why is everything always about race? Mm -hmm. and, and the reality is that like everything is always about race. Yes, yeah. Everybody exists as a racialized person, mm -hmm. right? Uh, mm -hmm. Including white people and whiteness as a, a an element of racialization, right? Yeah. So yeah. there's never a moment in our lives as like, physiological social human beings where race is not a factor, right? Mm -hmm. So it's always about race. And it's also about these other things too, like mm -hmm. class and gender and mm -hmm. sexuality, mm -hmm. right? And so I think it's important to understand that that um Race um, is always there, right? Mm -hmm. But we're really, what we're really concerned about is racism. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be of a certain race or uh, um, a certain race in a certain society in a certain time period that structures your health opportunities, mm -hmm. right? It's always there whether or not we want to acknowledge or talk about it or not, right? Mm -hmm. um, if you want to have a conversation about transportation equity, 
uh, and race and racism doesn't come up, then we're not actually having a full conversation about transportation equity mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. transportation opportunities affect people differently mm-hmm. based on the history of racialization mm-hmm. and opportunities available based on racism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's always there. So I think it's important that folks get comfortable just talking about it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's why we really wanted to do this episode so that we can kind of give folks who maybe aren't in public health the language to be able to talk about this and how racism does impact the health of individuals and communities. Um, So let's talk about that. So what are kind of some of the physical, mental, emotional, spiritual impacts of everyday racism on a person? Yeah, I think, excuse me, I think you just said that every day like that's a that's the key thing right because yeah. it is every day whether we know it or not yeah. whether we see it or not like you don't have to for example back to transportation you don't have to hop on like a bus or a max every day and have somebody say something racist to you to know that there's racism on the max mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there's racism on the max yeah know? it's there uh, whether or not there's interpersonal mm-hmm. um exchange of racism there or a racist microaggression there is is not really the point it's there the opportunity is, is, is there right uh, and so I think that it is an everyday thing. And that's the key thing about the saying racism, that it's not like an anomaly yeah. or a random event, right? Yeah. Like you see it in the news and the media when like, you know, like, for example, like an NBA coach says something like clearly racist. Mm-hmm. And now it's like, oh, like there is an example of racism. Racism is still. A th- no, yeah. it's always, it's always there. It's yeah. not like uh, it hasn't faded. It's mm-hmm. just, it, as I mentioned at the top of the conversation, racism it, it evolves mm-hmm. based on, you know, like the, the time and the political and the social and, and those other environmental things, right? Um, and so I think that it is every day. I think it's a key thing to, to understand. In terms of like the impacts, um, so again, this can be very, there can be very direct impacts on health um, and there can be indirect um, impacts, right? So a direct impact, for example, I think I mentioned is like if somebody says something to you that's racist and you have a stress response to that, your cortisol mm-hmm. goes up, your heart rate goes up, respiration mm-hmm. goes up, all those things, right? Um, that's going to take a toll on you mm-hmm. over, and, and at the end, right? Mm-hmm. And this goes for like pretty much any form of um, uh, systematic like exclusion or oppression, right? So it mm-hmm. could apply for sexism and homophobia, all these things, right? Um, but if somebody says something racist to you, like you're going to have a stress response to that. And a normal stress response is that um, eventually like you quote unquote get over it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Your, <laughs> your heart rate goes back down. Um, your breathing goes to normal and the cortisol levels um, will return to what they should be, right? Um, but then just imagine it happens again later that day. Yeah. Uh, and then it happens the next day. And then it happens two weeks later. Mm-hmm. And then it doesn't happen again for a month. But every time you go back to that place that it happened, yeah. it's thinking that it might happen. Yeah. This idea of an anticipatory anxiety mm-hmm. uh, or chronic vigilance, right? These are all connected to what we call uh, allostatic load in public mm-hmm. health, right? Mm-hmm. This is the idea of a perfectly normal, healthy stress response that human beings have to have to do basic functions like stand up or get out of bed, right? Mm-hmm. We have to have this change in blood pressure and all these things for us to function as human beings, right? This typical fight, flight, or freeze response, right? That's normal, that's healthy. When you are exposed to chronic racism, even if it's just like something like as trivial, I don't wanna say the word trivial because it's not, but like if it's just a one uh, racist microaggression, just mm-hmm. one time mm-hmm. in the classroom, uh, that's gonna stress you out in the classroom and then you have reason to believe that every time you go to that classroom, yeah. that it could happen again. So yeah. whether or not it actually happens again or not, you can have a stress response every time you go to class now, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's all through dysregulating our stress processes through allostatic load. Um, so that's one direct way in which racism is toxic for our health, right? It's toxic yeah. stress, right? Yeah. And I think that toxic stress not only carries effects through the individual, but also carries effects through their families and their communities and 
through generations and seeing that stress response change physiology and change yeah. throughout generations. Yeah, and I think that just, yeah, exactly. I think that there's robust evidence on this now. Um, we call this life course epidemiology, right? Life course in public health. Um, the shows in which um, the consequences, the biological, the physiological consequences of racism, mm-hmm. not race, because race is socially constructed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the experience of your race in a society as determined by the structures of oppression and exclusion that are racism, that those experiences can have physiological, biological consequences on adults mm-hmm. that they can then transmit intergenerationally yes. to the kids, right? Yes. So and we the, have research. And those kids' kids, yeah. and it just carries throughout. Yeah, and so it's one of those things where, um, and this is just like, you know, like not to give a specific example, but just generally just for the point of conversation, right? So we have research right now that suggests it's like at least three generations, right? Um, so like your mom and your grandmother, right? So mm-hmm. my class, one of the class I teach here, um, the module on this is called you, your mama, and your mama's mama. Mm-hmm. Because the reality is that we have evidence to suggest that whatever our grandmothers were experiencing in regards to like racism had the ability to affect um, her epigenetic markers, right? Mm-hmm. Not genes, but the markers on top of the genes that regulate when certain genes turn on, turn off, right? So it's altering gene function and yeah. gene expression, right? That those changes can then be transmitted to the daughter and the daughter can then transmit that, you know, to like their kids, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's the ways in which racism, something that's very social, right? This idea of embodiment that we talk about in public health, right? That we can embody physiologically and biologically exposure to benzene or air pollution, mm-hmm. but we also embody racism because when we're exposed to racism, it ends up eliciting this response from us physiologically and mm-hmm. it becomes embedded into our biology, right? Mm-hmm. Just imagine that over time and just a week um, or over a year, and then imagine that over a lifetime, over an entire life course mm-hmm. and the consequences of that, right? So I think that that's a very, very, very direct um, way in which racism affects health, right? Um, and I think in terms of like, you know, to kind of get back to this in terms of like some of the indirect things, uh, I think I mentioned, you know, housing segregation. Mm-hmm. Um, so everybody, uh, I want to say everybody, but generally everybody knows that like, you know, the social determinants of health are important, right? Well, mm-hmm. some of these things are like housing and education, right? Mm-hmm. But racism is historically structured who's going to have the best and most healthy, like, you know, housing opportunities, the best neighborhoods, the healthiest neighborhoods with the most green space and the better food environment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, who can afford to go to college, right? Through things like, you know, redlining or the fact that schools are segregated mm-hmm. um, and things of that nature, right? And so then you have the indirect consequences of that, right? Because when you racialize opportunities for education, for employment, you're now essentially creating this inextricably dense relationship between class and poverty yes. and race. Yes. And that then reproduces itself in a form of economic exclusion and, and oppression, right? And mm-hmm. so you can imagine a situation where racism structures whether or not a person of color will ever be able to go to college mm-hmm. and whether or not they're ever going to go to college is going to shape how much money, what kind of job they can get, whether they're going to have insurance benefits, mm-hmm. um, um, where they can live. Mm-hmm. So whether they can live in the, like a healthy neighborhood with green space or next to the highway, right. Mm-hmm. Um, from a racist education or housing policy. Right. And so those are ways in which racism can indirectly have multiple consequences on broad parts of the population. Right. Mm-hmm. Not just based on the individual interaction. Yes, definitely. And, so these are some of the effects that it has on people. And so what are some of the effects that it has on communities? And what are some of the implications for communities of color? Yeah, I think, um, you know, broadly, what we tend to see, at least in like public health and some things that we focus on, right, the consequences of racial segregation, mm-hmm. um, you see community structures that are um, what are classified as like, quote unquote, food deserts, mm-hmm. um, questionable term. But um, mm-hmm. that's the conversation for another day. Um, so 
less healthy food environment, um, zoning policies that um, situate communities of color next to like more toxic environments, so landfills mm-hmm. or industrial sightings, things of that nature, right? Um, so I think that in a community scale, those are some of the consequences, right? I also think that something that racism does quite well um, disenfranchise mm-hmm. um, communities of color, right? Through criminalization, right? And over-policing mm-hmm. um, with the that like just that's been going on recently, there's a revisiting of the stop and frisk thing mm-hmm. in New York, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that there's ways in which racism can systematically disempower um, a community by stripping political power yeah. from the community yeah. strategically, right? Um, so when prisoners are counted, the census are counted where the prison is, not where they were arrested or their home mm-hmm. community, right? Um, and so uh, and they can't disenfranchised they can't vote anyway but what matters here is that the census is that the money that would have gone to the community now goes to the county mm. or the area that the, the jail of the prison is located right mm-hmm. and it's usually not a low yes. community of color so yeah. it's, it's a way in which economic resources are now being reallocated and distributed um, based on a racist criminal policy right mm-hmm. and so i think there's ways in which um the community impacts are are, are pretty wide ranging right um, I think that for me, what I try to live in my work is that health is fundamentally political. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's always political because we're talking about the large structural um, policy processes mm-hmm. um, that are shaping health opportunities, right? And so if we're not engaging civically and politically, then we're not going to be able to do anything in terms of advancing health equity. Yeah. Um, and so if you think about the ways in which racism has informed who can vote or who has economic power, mm-hmm. um, that's a, a pretty ca- catastrophic way in which racism um, is, is affecting communities. Yeah. And I think the piece about that health is political is so important because health is inherently a value of a human person. And so when we see structures and policies that don't value people equally in terms of their health, that's seeing, that's saying something about who they see as mattering and whose life matters. Yeah. I think that that's, um, and that's a, I think that's a key thing, right? I think that anybody, um, any, anybody, uh, you know, it's been in the U.S. Um, for more than five minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll figure out quickly what the the racialized order of value is mm-hmm. on, on life in the United States, right? And I think that one of the ways in which you know racism can be um, and is in many ways uh, toxic is that it it can eat away at our sense of like hope, yes. um, and confidence, right? And so yeah. there's this you know some kind of political science philosophical notion of democratic equality, right? John Rawls and this idea that we in order to have like any type of sense of fairness or justice everybody has to actually truly believe that the society they live in actually cares about them Mm -hmm. and that their voice matters Mm -hmm. that they're included in the conversation Mm -hmm. if we don't have that principle established then there's no possible way that we can actually get to this a sense of justice right where everybody is kind of like included and things are equitable in any domain of life right Mm -hmm. that if we don't have this then like we can't have these other things right because that leads to tension and distrust Mm -hmm. and the thing is the reality is there's ample reasons why <laughs> there is distrust. Yes. Um, yes. There are very many, in my own work, there's very many reasons why I'm critical of my own field of public health because mm-hmm. we have some, we've done some questionable things, yeah. right? And we are still doing questionable things in terms of how we do research and our public health policies and things of that nature, right? And so I think that that's one of the things that is so damaging about racism uh, on a structural and institutional level is that it can end up um, essentially curtailing people's sense of hope Yeah. that there is a political, that there is, what's the recourse, right? Like, can we do something about this? Mm-hmm. And if you can damage that um, 
and coupling that with like systematic ways that the, the for voter suppression and disenfranchisement, right? Mm-hmm. Couple those two things, then you know things kind of then they. How do you do that? You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. How, do you, how do you how do you go about um, addressing that issue, right? So I think it's for me, it's like always centering the, um, the political piece and the, the significance of civic engagement mm-hmm. um, that we can't just talk about health equity and talk about services and counseling mm-hmm. and getting a flu vaccine mm-hmm. and washing our hands. Like that's not going to move the needle, right? Mm-hmm. If, it's, if we don't politicize it and make it about a social and political thing that raises these things, then it's it's not going to move us very far. Yeah, absolutely. And that has mental health impacts on communities and individuals, of course, when you're talking about self-worth and feeling valued by your society and feeling like you have a place of belonging and a purpose in the society that you live in. Um, and so let's, I want to talk about when a person of color is maybe listening to this or reflecting on the health impacts of racism and how do you kind of reclaim a feeling of sense of control over your own health and how do you still practice healthy behaviors and do all the things that we promote for you know doing healthy things um knowing that there are going to be these impacts of racism that you just can't control yeah i mean i think it's a i mean it's a tough question because i think that one um this is a question everybody's answering themselves. Yes. You know, yeah, like, so yeah. I, I think there's just this one person of color. Like for me, it's like, there's no way I can answer this question mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, for, for anybody else other than myself. Right. Uh, so I think it's a, the, the first thing I say, um, but in terms of this idea, like reclaiming um, control, I think it's also, and again, this is why for me, like in my work, I'm very critical of what we do. Right. Uh, I don't think healthy behaviors are a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have, define and systematically create a narrative and discourse about what is healthy and what is unhealthy. Now, I will say that there are certain obvious things, right? Like fruity pebbles aren't the same <laughs> as real fruit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Those things, yes. There are certain things that are just like they're healthier, just like factually these are healthier, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you can make argument for why like fruity pebbles is healthy in the context of what's your budget? What's your food budget? Yeah. Um, how can we talk about healthy behavior and healthy choices when we don't pay attention to economic context, right? Mm-hmm. What if you're in a, a racialized, racially segregated neighborhood where the food environment is basically a corner store and there is no fruit? The only thing that approximates fruit is fruity pebbles, and you got to feed your family, right? Mm-hmm. So like, everybody knows that apples are healthier than fruity pebbles. Yeah. Um, but is somebody purchasing fruity pebbles an unhealthy choice and mm-hmm. unhealthy behavior? Mm-hmm. No. It's perfectly rational and legitimate to do what they need to do to survive, right? Yeah. So I think that for me, I would critique and push back on this idea that healthy behaviors are a fixed thing. Mm-hmm. Those mm-hmm. are very much social constructed, just like racism is, right? Yeah. There's no such thing as an inherently healthy behavior. That's going to be a socially, economically, temporally contingent behavior, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or thing, right? So, um, and then also, I think that also this, this idea of hope um, and control, I think those are very important things, right? Um, but those are at very different levels of action and intervention than addressing structural causes, right? Mm-hmm. So I do not discount for a second that, you know, some of the things that we can do for self-care are fundamentally important, right? Mm-hmm. And that's different for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I definitely think that there's a there's a space for individual attention and self-care, um, regardless of what that is, right? Finding those spaces, those third, those third spaces, uh, so to speak, right, to 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 feel value, to feel like you connect, to, to be energized and be lifted up um, mm. um, amongst, you know, yourself, your peers, and other people of color. I think that's important, but just let me just pose this question to you, right? Like, if I tell you that, for example, where I used to work in Baltimore, and I'm doing a neighborhood analysis, and the 
uh, a neighborhood in, in the west side of Baltimore that was 98% African-American, historically redline neighborhood, um, and then a neighborhood in north Baltimore, um, historically racially exclusive neighborhood, so it's nothing but white communities there mm-hmm. by law and then by racial leadership to come in eventually. Um, and also zoning code was racist in Baltimore as well. If, in, for example, 2011, life expectancy in one of these neighborhoods, uh, the mostly white neighborhood is 84 years old, and it's 63 in this other neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, which 63 is the life expectancy of the United States of America in 1940. Mm. So this mm-hmm. neighborhood was 40 years behind mm-hmm. the life expectancy curve, right? How ridiculous would it be for me to say that we can do something about this if the folks in that neighborhood that live to be 63 on average would just be more hopeful? Yeah, yeah. It's it's ridiculous, right? Mm-hmm. It's disrespectful mm-hmm. and patronizing, right? Yeah. I think there's definitely a way as an individual thing to find ways to recognize and reinforce our value mm-hmm. um, as people of color, right? And seek those spaces that do that and affirm that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and do all the institutional things that we can do to change our workspaces, our classroom spaces, mm-hmm. um, to reflect the values that we hold for ourselves and hold others accountable that don't see us that way, right? There's certainly institutional things that we can do to create environments mm-hmm. um, that can allow us to be more hopeful, mm-hmm. to allow us to have higher self-esteem. Right? Yeah. I think it's... Um, it's a, it's always like a both and, right? I mm-hmm. think that you know, we, I think it's important that for people of color, especially for for kids, and, and you starting to see a shift. You know, children's books that are like you know trying to encourage kids, like yeah, they should be happy with like your skin tone and your mm-hmm. hair. Like mm-hmm. that's important, right? Self care, self love are fundamentally important, right? But how does that how is that going to change at sixty three to an eighty four? Yeah, it's just not. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I think there's there's room for all of this for us to engage on, right? But I think that for me, what I try to do in my work is stop focusing so much on individuals and what we can do as individual people yeah. and focus on the things that are actually causing us. Mm-hmm. They're subjecting to us. They're, they're creating the conditions where we have low self-esteem mm-hmm. um, and creating conditions where um, we don't feel hopeful, right? Mm-hmm. So the only way, the solution to that is to undo those things that are creating that those conditions. Yeah. Right? Um, and while we're doing that, do these other things too, right? It's kind of like, you mm-hmm. know, uh, like cancer. Like it's not like we don't try to find new chemo treatments and treat cancer until we can figure out a way to stop the cause of cancer, right? A lot of those causes of cancer, they're complex, right? A lot of them are going to require some significant social, political, and Mm -hmm. economic changes, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of patterns, exposures that lead to cancer, right? It doesn't mean that we don't treat people or come up with new treatments while we're trying to figure out those bigger things, right? I think that for me on this topic with racism, I'd like to spend more time talking about how do we spend more, basically how do we spend more time talking about the Mm -hmm. bigger thing and not put it back on individuals, um, because resilience, I mean, resilience is real. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wouldn't be here if if not for that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think any student of color that's on campus right now or any faculty or staff of color um, would be where they are right now if it wasn't for resilience, wherever that comes from, right? Um, the self-care that we have to get us through each day, each microaggression, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, each the example of institutional bias that we encounter, right? We have to have that resilience, right? But our resilience isn't going to... Um, change the game unless we're using that resilience to actually attack and address the larger structural problems. Yes, that makes so much sense. And I'm not going to try to repeat what you just said because it's way more eloquent than I could ever put it. But I think it's about really just healing communities and not just trying to focus on healing individuals and building resilience within those spaces and also having that support system of communities and finding healing in that. So um, I want to jump it's not really shifting topics, but let's talk about white privilege. Let's get into it. Um, I think there's a lot of eh, false notions out there about what it is and what it isn't. Um, so let's talk about what it is and um, how, do, how does it counterbalance? How 
is white privilege an advantage to the disadvantage of racism? Yeah, I'm not, I'm, there is no such thing as white privilege. What are you talking about? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah this, is, this is an interesting question um, for sure. So I think that, again, like to, to try to avoid actual like definitions, right? Because I think that these yeah. things are fixed or funny, right? Yeah. Um, but generally, like I think it's, you know, it's useful to understand white privilege as a set of unearned advantages and mm-hmm. opportunities that um, people in the United States specifically, right? Because whiteness and white privilege are different in different places, right? Absolutely. Just like race changes and uh, systems of uh, um, exclusion based on race change based on where you are. Uh, in the U.S., it's it's really oriented around the unearned just by default, you were born white, mm-hmm. therefore you don't have to worry about these things and therefore you get these things that mm-hmm. no one else gets, right? I think that, um, I mean, I think that's kind of good enough to leave it. I think generally like that's what white provision entails, right? It's like you didn't do anything different than no, anybody else did, and yet you get this opportunity and you mm-hmm. get this privilege, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that the key thing with this, and, and I think this is important too, um, and when I have conversations in my classes, uh, and there's always a lot of white students because this is Portland mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, it's a university, right? Uh, not everybody's comfortable talking about um, whiteness yeah. or white privilege, right? Yeah. Um, people don't even really think of whiteness as a thing. Uh, or a that, culture, that right. there is culture and whiteness. Yeah, right, that it was that is it's a result of racialization, of racial formation in the U.S., mm-hmm. right? That it was created, that whiteness wasn't always a thing, that it was legislated um, and, and, and kind of maintained uh, through various political and economic mechanisms over history, right? Um and so I think that engaging in this conversation is always a challenge because it's uncomfortable for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But quite frankly, as a professor, it's like, you know, I'm cool with uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I'm not cool with unsafe. Yeah. But I'm completely okay with being uncomfortable. Like, And I think that this is one of those things that makes folks uncomfortable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that um, in terms of, like, you know, trying to understand white privilege with this particular generation of students that will be in my classroom, it's making the connection that, a, B, and C was done historically, mm-hmm. which is shaping your privilege right now. It does not matter whether or not you did A, B, and C historically, yeah. Yeah. whether you support that A, B, C, and that was done historically, mm-hmm. um, or whether or not your grandfather tried to stop A, B, and C. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. Like, yeah. It just doesn't matter. Like, Just don't make arguments for why um, for why it doesn't apply, why it's not relevant. Right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's like the, the, one of the key starting points for... Um, having this conversation, at least in my class basis, right? Our thanks to Ryan for joining us today. Our conversation went so well that we will be having part two coming out next week, so stay tuned. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode. We've all made it to week two of one of the strangest and challenging terms I'm sure most of us can ever remember. Just want to hold space for that and congratulate all of us on navigating our new normals. Keep an eye on those PSU emails, Instagram pages, and website for all of the amazing ways that PSU is staying connected and cultivating community during this virtual term. What and Shaq are continuing to work on ways to be a virtual resource for y'all. So stay tuned. A virtual newsletter and online workshops and activities are in the works. And as always, you can reach out to us with questions or comments through our what at pdx.edu email or our Instagram pages DMs. Link for that is in the description of this episode. Stay safe and well, everyone. Until next week. <laughs>